Well, if you have your sheet or you have a Bible in front of you, I want to uh, turn back this evening back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to draw your attention especially to the final two verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 57 and 58. And we read this, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord. And our subject this evening, as you have it on your sheets, is the Christian response to the resurrection. The Christian response to the resurrection. Today, of course, being Easter Sunday, we reflect, as we were thinking this morning, on that glorious truth that our Saviour is no longer in the tomb, that he's alive, and of course he's alive forevermore. The angels said he is risen, not he was risen, or he has been risen, but he is risen. It's continuous. Christ is alive forevermore. Our Saviour rose from the dead, and we praise God this, this evening for that glorious truth. And of course, it's a truth that sets apart the Christian faith from all the other man-made religions and, and philosophies that are out there. I don't want to offend anyone here this evening who perhaps is caught up in one of these other religions, but when you analyse the religions of this world, there's really two kinds of religion, we might say. Either it's a religion that has a god or gods that never existed, or it's a religion that has a god or gods that are dead or are dying. In the first case, it's a religion where the gods never had life in the first place. And in the second case, it's a religion where the gods couldn't hold on to life. But true biblical Christianity, we look at a god who is alive, a god who is living. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are the eternal God, three in one. They are from everlasting to everlasting. They have life in and of themselves. And therefore, you know, as we were thinking this morning, when Christ was in the tomb, death could not hold him. Just as the scriptures had said, Christ rose again, didn't he, on the third day. But I think so often as believers... We often just stop there. We come to Resurrection Sunday and we rejoice, we triumph, we say, yes, Christ has risen. And then really the, the doctrine, as it were, of the resurrection just ends there for us. We love to sing the hymns, don't we? We've been unable to sing this year, sing these glorious hymns. But we love to sing those hymns, thine be the glory and so on. And we rejoice that Christ has, has been raised from the dead, but it has no real impact on our day-to-day -day lives. We'll wake up tomorrow morning, we'll just carry on the rest of this week, just as per normal. And this, this doctrine of the resurrection just has no impact on how we live day by day and as we go about our business, whether at home or work or wherever it may be. We just sort of carry on as normal. But you know, Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15, he reminds us in this chapter that the, that the doctrine of the, of the resurrection, just as with every doctrine, that this doctrine of the resurrection should influence and it should shape the way that we live in this fallen 
and sinful world. Now, a few moments ago, we read those last few verses of this chapter from verses 50 through to 58. We didn't read the whole of the chapter. As you can see, it's a a long chapter. Um, But maybe it would be just helpful just to run through the chapter, run through Paul's argument in in 1 Corinthians 15 here, just to see the point that he's drawing us to at the end of the chapter. And he's been speaking all about the resurrection. And he was seeking to deal with the fact that there were some in the church at Corinth who were denying the resurrection. Or at least they were distorting the truth of the resurrection. And so if you go back into verses 1 through to 4 there, uh, Paul begins to address this this whole issue of the resurrection. And uh, there in verses 1 to 4, he spells out to the Corinthians that this is an essential element of the gospel. You notice there in verse 3, he says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He gives these three, as it were, essential elements to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christ died for our sins, that Christ was buried, but thirdly, that Christ rose again. And so he says to him, look, the resurrection is an essential part of the gospel. It's an integral part of the the good news that the Bible is proclaiming. And then in verses 5, through to 11, he, he begins to point to the vast number of eyewitnesses who saw Christ risen from the dead. And he talks about there how over 500 brethren at once saw the risen Christ. And he includes, of course, himself in the list. Paul says, look, I've seen Christ. And the point that he is uh, making in this this particular point is, well, look, you know, if, if me, you remember what I was like, I was a persecutor of the church, I hated Christ, I wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ, and yet if, if I have seen him and I testified to him, someone who would have, you know, would have spent every waking moment to deny Christ and deny his resurrection, can you not see that this is true? And so Paul lays it on thick here. He says, look, I am testifying, I have seen the risen Saviour, the least, he says, of all the apostles, he's the one who was, uh, you know, not even called, not even meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He says, but I've seen him and I testify to him. But Paul goes on in the following verses and he begins to lay out this argument and show to them, look, if you take away the resurrection out of the gospel or if you distort the truth concerning the resurrection, then you have no gospel at all. There is no good news. In verse 17 there he says, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. He says, Yet ye are yet in your sins. He says, Do you see the point? Look, if if Christ did not die and was buried and then rose again, you are still in your sins. And he actually goes on and says, Of all men, you are the most miserable. We have no hope. Because if the resurrection's not true, then we have no hope that we will one day rise with Christ. Take the resurrection away, we have no gospel, no hope. He says, look, you may as well just stop now. You may as well, in a sense, go home, forget about the gospel. You know, just live your life, do something more profitable if if the gospel's not true. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
But you see, Paul then, he begins to seek in the remaining verses of the chapter to present this brilliant and this wonderful uplifting argument to show the certainty of Christ's resurrection. And therefore, he shows to us the certainty for all believers of their resurrection at the last day. And you can read that chapter for yourself. I'd encourage you to do so when you go home tonight. Paul says, look, Christ is risen, and then you will rise with him. You know, you, when you get buried, it's just like putting someone to sleep. And Christ is going to come again, and you will rise to be with Christ. He does this, he uses such wonderful soaring language of how we'll be changed. If you notice in verse 42, he says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown a natural body. So, sorry, in verse 43, it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And then you go on into verse 53, part of the bit that we read earlier. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. They're wonderful verses. This is what's going to happen to our decaying bodies. They will be changed. What was once corruptible will be raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. And then you come to verse 54. And the Apostle's quoting from Isaiah 25 that we read earlier. Isaiah 25 and verse 8. He says, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. It's wonderful verses, isn't it? He says death here. Death, the king of terrors, as it's described in the book of Job. Death, the king of terrors, is defeated by the king of kings. The Lord Jesus Christ, the great king of kings and lord of lords, he's vanquished death. And you see, death is personified here. He's pictured as this victorious warrior. You know, so often as you read the Bible, you'll see that death is is pictured as a person. And here it's pictured as as this victorious warrior But Paul says, death is gone. Death which haunts us all of our lives and hangs over our shoulders as we thought a little bit this morning. It follows us like a shadow, doesn't it, all the way through this life. Death has been defeated. It's well been said, hasn't it, that from the moment that we are born, we're dying. Death is that enemy that's just unrelenting in its pursuit, isn't it? Death is no respecter of persons. The great, the good, the rich, the noble, the kind, the unkind, whoever it is, death pursues everyone. Everyone's eventually taken and swallowed by death. And every graveyard, every tombstone is a a monument to the victory that this enemy has in this world. We can't escape death, can we? You can't bribe death. You can't buy him off. You can't cheat him or hoodwink death. Death is inescapable. I think this is a sad fact that so many today act as if somehow they can outsmart death. They think that somehow this great enemy will never take over them. They go on living their lives seemingly with no thought of death or what lies beyond the grave. They try and shut out the solemnity of death out of their minds. 
You know, always putting it off. They imagine that death might come tomorrow, not today. Don't worry about that. I'll think about these sorts of things when I'm older. And I think that's why this past year has been shocking, hasn't it? It's been shocking for our society because every day we've been reminded of death. We try and desensitise death. We try and hide death. We try and cover death up. We sort of try and airbrush it out of life, don't we? You know, even today, I think that so many funerals have been changed. We, funerals used to be so often solemn occasions and sombre affairs, and yet today, so often, they're given over to uh, all sorts of jollity and so on. I'm not saying that there's, these things are wrong, but I'm saying it shows that this, our societies try to sort of do away with the idea of death. So many things that they bring into a funeral service that are just so inappropriate for the fact that the king of terrors is there. And yet this year we've been reminded, haven't we, the news every day, how many people have died. It's been very solemn. It's been very sad, of course. It's been very sobering. But Paul reminds us that here for the believer, we can say, oh, death, where is thy sting? And we can say, oh, grave, where is thy victory? Now, the unbeliever can't say this. If you're not a believer here this evening, you cannot say these words with any confidence. You have to say death still has its sting. The grave still has a victory. Because you're not in Christ, as we were thinking this morning, life comes through Christ and you cannot say these wonderful words. Because you're not in Christ, you won't be raised with Christ. But for the believer, Paul says, look, the death, the great swallower, is swallowed. The great devourer is devoured. Death is dead because Christ died for our sins. And Christ has defeated this, this last enemy. It was through his death that he overcame death. That's the wonderful thing. You remember that, that passage in Hebrews 2, 14 tells us that, that Christ used death to destroy death, just like uh, David used Goliath's sword to cut off his heads. He used death that he might destroy him that hath the power of death. And that's the remarkable thing, isn't it? That Christ, as it were, he took on Satan in his own domain and defeated him with his own weapon. And when we come to verses 55 and 56 of this chapter, these words that Paul uses here are like a song. They're a song of triumph. He imagines himself and believers standing, as it were, on the very neck of this slain and defeated enemy. Christ has deprived death of its sting. He's disarmed it. He's, he's completely rendered it harmless for us as believers. And so the grave no longer boasts because it's nothing. As I said a few moments ago, I think as believers we get to the end of verse 56 and, and it just ends there. We're delighted in all that Paul has been saying and so we should be as believers. But then it just seems to, that's it. We go home, resurrection day's over, we've, you know, it's Easter Sunday, wonderful. It has no impact on us tomorrow, as it were, as Christians. Well, Paul, as he always does in his epistles, he seeks to weld doctrine with practice. Doctrine is good if it's in the head, but it's, it's useless if it doesn't affect the heart. 
And just here at the end of this chapter, now Paul points us to a number of things that we should do as believers in the light of the resurrection. And I want us to notice, as we look at these two verses at the end of the chapter, just three things very quickly that we should do as believers in response to this wonderful doctrine of the resurrection. And the first thing that Paul highlights in verse 57 is that he expects us as Christians to be thankful. He expects us to be thankful. He says, thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's resurrection should make us live a life of thankfulness and gratitude and, and therefore love to God. It's not a selfish thanks, is it? It's a, it's a thanks be to God, he says. It's to God. And he spells out the reason why we should give thanks to God. He says, because we now have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a victory over death. That's what he's been describing here. It's a victory over this last and final enemy. We're to be thankful because we are victorious through Christ. We stand in his victory. And this victory is the most marvellous victory imaginable. We've passed from death to life. We were thinking of that this morning. From spiritual death to spiritual life. We've gone from that, that facing that eternal death to eternal life. And we now share it in Christ's resurrection. He's the first fruits. And we will follow afterward at his coming. He is like the guarantee that one day we shall rise too. This victory is gained for us, is gained for us heaven, hasn't it? Is gained for us immortality. Is gained for us incorruption. It's wonderful, isn't it? And Paul says, look, we should be thankful. We no longer fear eternal death. We no longer fear the grave. We no longer have a fear over these things as Christians. In actual fact, the grave is just a portal to be present with the Lord. Remember what Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord's. That's a wonderful thing. You know, when we think about the grave, really it's just like a bed for the believer, isn't it? You think about when you've got children and you take your child to bed and you put your child to bed, you lay them in the bed and you watch them go to sleep knowing that in the morning they will rise again and that's what it's like when we take a loved one who's fallen asleep in Christ, who's died, when we lay them in the grave, we know they will rise again. They've just, as it were, they're just asleep. And so you see, Christ, he even perfumes the grave for us. We look at the grave no longer in the same way. And so we rejoice, therefore, that Christ has gained this victory. And this victory has been applied to our souls. And you see, this victory here, we never earned it, did we? And we didn't merit it. We've contributed nothing to this, this glorious victory over sin and over death and over Satan. The battle against death was a battle that we could never win, was it? And yet the wonderful thing is that we share in the spoils. Christ has won the victory and he gives the spoils to us. He gives the victory to his people. You know, it reminds me of a passage in the Old Testament. Do you remember in 1 Samuel and chapter 13? And that occasion when, do you remember when David, he was with the Philistines and they went out to battle in verse 29 and David went out with, to battle with the Philistines and 
The Philistines agreed that David should not fight with them because they were worried about his allegiance. Would David fight with them or against them? And so they agree in in 1 Samuel 29, they say to David, look, David, you go home. You go back to Ziklag where you live and you stay out of this battle because, of course, they were fighting against the Israelites. And so David is sent back home, but as he comes back to Ziklag, they find that Ziklag has been burned to the ground. And he finds that all his wives and all the women and children and so on in the city have been taken as spoil, been taken as hostages, and, and there's nothing left. And if you know 1 Samuel chapter 30, David goes out and he pursues after the enemy. And uh, you can read the account there in 1 Samuel 30. But as they go to pursue the enemy, there are a number of people who were too weak and, and too faint to go and fight the fights. And so David tells them and he leaves them at the brook and he, and, he, and he leaves them there and he goes off to fight this battle. And they go and win this wonderful victory and everyone is returned, all the women and the children, and they gain so much spoil, so many things that they've gained from this wonderful victory in battle. And as they come back, they want to share the, the spoil with these people who are faint, who were not able to fight. And you can read there how there were some men who they were unhappy with this. How dare these people gain the things that we've won in the fight? They've done nothing in this fight. They shouldn't get the spoil. And they're angry with David. And you can read there how David made it a law, a statute unto this day, that all the stuff would be shared alike with everyone, whether they fought in the battle or not. And I think there's a wonderful picture there of the believer. There's David, our greater David, Christ, who goes and he fights this battle that we could never fight. We were too faint. We were too weary. We could never take on death and sin and Satan. But David, Christ, has won the victory for us. And now we share in the glorious spoils. And we've gained life. And we've gained victory in Christ. You imagine those people as they came back. Everything's returned to them. All their possessions have been given back to them. Their wives, their children and so on have all been returned. They share in it how joyful they would be. And yet they've done nothing. And so it is with us, believer. And so Paul says to us here in 1 Corinthians 15, but thanks be to God. Oh, we should live lives of thankfulness. Christ returns from this victory over death of its spoils and he divides the bounty amongst all his people. Isaiah 53 tells us that, doesn't it? At the end of the chapter there, what does it say? Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great and he, that's Christ, shall divide the spoil with the strong. Now, of course, we're described there as being strong. We're not strong in and of ourselves. Our strength is given to us by Christ. But Christ now divides the spoil with us. And that's a wonderful chapter of all his sorrows and his sufferings. All his sufferings were for us, but we gain the victory. He has procured this victory for us. He's redeemed us from the curse of the law. We're no longer lying, are we, under the power and the sentence of death, but we have this liberty because Christ's victory is our victory. Don't you think, believer, that our lives should reflect this? Our love for God should be immense. It should be unbridled. Thanks be to God. You see, we've come today, Easter Sunday, and we rejoice that Christ rose from the dead, but this should be the attitude of our heart every day. 
Thanks, God, that you sent Christ to die for me. And that he rose victorious. And we can say, can't we, it's all of his grace. His undeserved favour to us. We didn't deserve this. Our lives then should be marked with thankfulness and joy. We said when they returned from the battle how joyful they would be. So often in scripture they talk about the joy of the spoil you know, from victory. And, and believe it, we should be so joyful at what Christ has done. As we stand in the victory of Christ, we should praise him, we should adore him, we should love him. And that's why Paul says here, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory. When you think about the Corinthian church, if you remember the background of the Corinthian church, how much sin they were in and, and they, how much they had departed from the gospel and so on. But Christ, but Paul says to them, look, you have the victory to you. And who is it through? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our great King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so that's the first thing, believers, that we should, our response to the resurrection, it should, we should be filled with thanks to our God. But the second thing that Paul does here is he encourages us to stand firm. He encourages us to stand firm. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, in verse 58, be ye steadfast, unmovable. Be ye steadfast, Unmovable. And he uses two words here to encourage us to stand firm. And the first word you see there is steadfast. And this conveys the idea of being firmly established. He wants the believers in Corinth to be established in the faith. And the picture here that he's really drawing is of a tree. A tree that's taken deep roots, roots that go deep down into the soil so that the tree is not easily blown over. Yes, the wind may blow through the leaves, but the, but the whole tree does not come down. And Paul tells us, look, in the light of the truth of the resurrection, he says to them, look, you need to hold on to the truths and the doctrines of Scripture. Be grounded in them. Don't let them go. Don't waver in your faith. Don't waver in your holding on to the principles and the great doctrines of the Word of God's. He says to them, look, in a sense, don't let the sifting and the, the, the sinking sands of modern thought come in and cause you to, to drift. Hold on to these truths. Remember what Solomon said. He told people to buy the truth and sell it not. And that's what Paul is really saying to us here. Be steadfast. You know, friends, we're not to be those who are blown about by every wind of doctrine that comes through the church or like those who are ever learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. We're to hold on, aren't we, to the plain and the great truths of the Bible. We're to hold on to, for example, the doctrine of creation. That God made this world in six literal days. Hold on to that truth, believer. We're to hold and stand steadfast on the fact that Christ is the eternal Son of God. We need to hold on to that truth. There's so many attacks to these doctrines that come in and seek to erode them. We need to hold on to the fact that Christ died an atoning death, that his, his death was an atonement for sin. We need to be fixed on the fact, like we're thinking today, that Christ literally rose from the dead on the third day. 
We need to hold on to the, all these wonderful doctrines that Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. We need to hold on to these things. Be steadfast in them. Hold on to the fact that Christ is risen and he's ascended and he's now seated at the right hand of his heavenly Father. You know, a tree that's constantly uprooted and then planted and then uprooted and planted again, it will be stunted in its growth. And it will never produce any fruit. And Paul says to us here, look, no, be steadfast, be rooted and grounded in the truths and the doctrines of the word of God. Don't stagger, friends. Don't be shaken. Don't move away from these truths. Because the moment we do, they open the door to all manner of sin and error and falsehoods. And it's then that you find that people begin to drift and shake in their faith. But Paul says, look, friends, be steadfast. And the second word that he uses here is immovable or unmovable. And that means that means to be unshaken. It means to be steady, something that's not easily toppled over. And Paul exhorts the believers of Corinth to, to stand even when temptation comes. It's, the word here has more of a sense of being attacked and facing uh, trouble in this sense from Satan. And so he says, be unmovable, even when the devil will throw everything at you, even when he tries to seduce you. Don't give in to the devil's lies. Don't be seduced by his evil schemes. So he says, look, stand your ground as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He says, look, the resurrection is true. It provides us with a solid hope. You know, we're going to be raised incorruptible. And this solid hope is built upon the solid foundation of Christ's resurrection. So he says, look, be, be steadfast, be unmovable. And as Christians, we may face the most severe pressures in this life we may even face the fear of death itself. But Paul says, look, be steadfast. He exhorts us, be steadfast, stand firm in the truths of God's words. He says, look, you see, in the light of the resurrection, you've got to remember where our hope is. Our hope lies beyond the grave. And so hold on to these truths. You see, the moment you take away the roots, you don't have the tree, you don't have the fruits. And if we want to be fruitful Christians, then we need to be grounded in these wonderful truths of God's words. And so we've seen these two things, then how we are expected to give thanks, how we're encouraged to stand firm. But the last thing that Paul does here in these verses is he exhorts us to be laboring. He exhorts us to be laboring. You notice what he says there. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. As Christians, we are each, aren't we, servants of Christ. We're to be involved in some aspect of the work of our Lord. And, and Paul reminds the believers here at Corinth, look, keep laboring. Keep working and laboring for your heavenly master. He says, look, you know, in the light of all that we've been thinking, that Christ died for our sins, that he was raised again. When we, when we think about this, this wonderful message of the good news, that's, it's a message of inestimable worth, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's a message that you just cannot place a value on. 
It's a message, isn't it, that brings eternal joy. He says, look, now that you know this wonderful message, now go and spread it. Go and labor for me. Go and be a servant of Jesus Christ, an ambassador for him. And friends, that immediately asks, encourages us to ask a question, doesn't it? Are we those who are laboring with Christ? Or are we loafers? Are we those who are just doing nothing for the kingdom of Christ? Do we seek each day to be laboring for our heavenly master? Christ has commanded us, hasn't he? Go ye into all the world. Are we doing this? You remember how we're described as being unprofitable servants. We're to go into his vineyard. We are to work while it is light, for night cometh. There's a time coming when we will no longer be able to spread the gospel. Because death will come. And so while we have this life, we should be laboring for our master. And of course, there's so many avenues for service, isn't there? We can teach the young. We can evangelize. We can give a tract to a colleague at work. We can share our testimony with somebody. We could uh, pray, can't we? What a wonderful ministry that is, prayer. You remember how Epaphras in the New Testament is described as a man of prayer. He was given over to this ministry. Do you remember what it tells us in uh, Colossians chapter 4 about Epaphras? A wonderful verse. See if I can find it in Colossians chapter 4. It says there in verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ. There's that expression. He was a servant. He was laboring for Christ. It says that this Epaphras, he saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. And what does he pray? That ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. What a wonderful ministry Epaphras had. He was laboring fervently for the people in prayer. You see, friends, we can be engaged in this ministry, can't we? In this laboring. We can labor in prayer. And we each have our own area of ministry that we can serve the Lord, don't we? We each have different gifts. We each have different responsibilities. We each have uh, different people whom we influence on a day-by-day basis. And the question this evening is, are we using our gifts? Are we using that influence that we've been given? We want to end life's journey with that wonderful welcome and that wonderful voice of God saying, well done, thou good and faithful servants. Isn't that what we want to hear as Christians? That we used all our energy, we used our passion, we used our zeal for Christ. I think when you... You know, when you look back over a day and you think about all the things you've done, how much of it was spent laboring for our heavenly master? When you think about, you read, for example, the, the diaries of John Wesley. John Wesley didn't used to keep a diary. He kept an hourly. He would write down every 20 minutes what he had done for Christ. That's amazing, isn't it, when you think about it? Break up every hour into 20-minute segments. What have I done for my master? And Paul says to us here, Christ has won you the victory, but what will you now do for him? Well, our duty is to serve him, isn't it? It's to serve him out of love. I love that word that Paul uses here in this verse, that word abounding there. It's a wonderful word, isn't it? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's a word that speaks of exceeding, going, you know, going, over, going on and on and on and on. Without limits, 
He has this idea of abundance. And and friends, tonight when we realize that this world is not our home, when we realize that that we're going to be in heaven, that there is life beyond the grave for us because we're in Christ, when we realize this, then the only thing that truly counts is eternity. And we should want, shouldn't we, to be spend, spend and to be spent for Christ. You see, the things of this world, they don't really matter, do they? You know, we, we have jobs and we have responsibilities and so on, and, and they're very, uh, it's good to have a job and it's good to work and it's good to labor and we need these things to support our family and so on. But when we think about it all, it's just all going to be left behind. But the works that we do for Christ are for eternity. I think there's a beautiful picture in Ruth, in the book of Ruth, of laboring. A number of weeks ago, we considered part of this chapter, didn't we, in Ruth chapter 2. And I think that Ruth is just a wonderful picture of the, the quiet Christian laborer, laboring and working. And I, and I think you can see a picture here of how we're to be in the Christian faith, laboring for Christ. You go to Ruth chapter 2, and you notice in verse 3 there, Naomi sends her out in verse 2, Go, my daughter. And it says, And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz. She gets up in the morning and she goes to glean in the field. And we know that so often in Scripture, gleaning and harvesting and so on is a picture of laboring in the harvest field of, of this world. And she goes and she gleans. And you come to verse uh, 7. And we have this description, Boaz has seen Ruth in the fields. He asks his servant, who is this, this damsel, who is this lady? And the servant replies, and he says there in verse 6, it is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. And then he says this, so she came and have continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. So she'd got up in the morning and she'd gone to glean in the field and this servant says she has been gleaning from morning even till now. And then you come towards the end of the chapter, you come into verse 17. It says, so she gleaned in the field until even. And even then her work wasn't done. It says that she beat out that she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. Isn't that a wonderful and a beautiful picture of the Christian laboring from morning until evening? Day after day we should be laboring for Christ and we may use it as a picture of our lives. May we be laboring from the morning of our lives and in the middle part of our lives and even right up until evening. Even in the twilight years of our life we can be laboring for our master. Using every moment for our saviour who died and bled for us. That's what we should be doing. You remember George Whitfield, the great 18th century evangelist, he had this mentality, didn't he? Just unceasing labor for Christ. Always abounding, wasn't he, in the work of the Lord. He lived only 55 years on this earth, but he achieved more for the kingdom of Christ than 30 men may do in a lifetime. Remember what Spurgeon said, he said, I feel that if I could live a thousand lives, I would like to live them all for Christ. And I should even then feel that they were all too little a return for his great love to me. But I think that 
if we're honest with ourselves, believers, we can often get downcast, can't we? We can often look around us and we see such spiritual apathy around us and we can become discouraged. But did you notice that Paul, as he gives this exhortation here, he can sense that the believers were becoming discouraged. He can sense that they, that, they, that they needed encouragement. And so he gives them not only this exhortation, but he gives them the motivation. Because he says there that you should always be abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain. I think sometimes we can feel and imagine, can't we, that our area of work, our little part of the the vineyard of Christ is so small, it's so insignificant. We can feel like so often we're not achieving anything for the Lord. We can perhaps look at others and we see that they're doing so much, but what we're involved in is such a little work, it's so small. But Paul says it doesn't matter whatever it is that you're laboring for Christ and keep going. Because your work is not in vain, it's not futile. Because it's for Christ. And perhaps at times we tire, we tire in prayer, don't we? But Paul says, keep going. Perhaps we feel like giving up in some area of service, but Paul says, keep going. There may be disappointments along the way. And if you've been involved in Christian ministry for any length of time, you'll know there's always disappointments around the corner. There's often things that come and we can become disheartened. But Paul says, keep going. Or there may be hindrances and Satan may throw his difficulties in the way. And he may put up his roadblocks and he may try and stop us. But Paul says that our work for the master is not in vain. Matthew Henry said this, the labor of Christians is never a lost labor. And friends, we must always remember that, that in our sufferings that we may endure in his service, nothing's to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And so Paul says to us, look, press on, believer. Press on laboring for Christ. Christ has risen for you. This is true. This is certain. Therefore, press on laboring for your heavenly master. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10 says this, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name. That's a wonderful truth, isn't it? Our laboring for Christ is never forgotten. And it's never in vain. Christ sees us as we work and we labor for him. You know, the Lord's work always succeeds, doesn't it? He will not let his labourer's work fail. Remember what the Bible tells us about the word of God. It will not return unto him void. And when we go out and we proclaim his word, whether it's just to our colleague at work, whether it's preaching, whether it's passing a tract, it will not return unto him void. Because Christ is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so as I conclude this evening, may God help us to respond to this doctrine of the resurrection. May we live those lives, as Paul tells us here, of thankfulness. May we be encouraged, as he does so here in verse 58, to stand firm, even when we face the attacks. And may we continue as God's people to be labouring for our Saviour.